It's a sign that you're open to new ideas and innovation. And if you're not, then as the environment that gets increasingly complex, you're not moving along with it. So you're not going to understand it or be able to take advantage of it or thrive. Fail, but fail fast. Don't don't drag it out. Just if it doesn't work, stop. And that's okay. You learn from mistakes. So you try something else and you look at new ideas, new innovations, and then you'll grow and thrive because of that. Welcome to the Thriving and Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. In today's podcast, I'm speaking with Stan Gallo. Stan is a partner with the Forensic Services team at Bidio in Brisbane. He has over 30 years' experience across law enforcement and professional services, holding local, state, and international leadership roles. In his current role, Stan provides proactive risk management, investigative and technology advice, to assist organisations in aligning governance, risk and compliance programs with their strategic objectives. Stan works with clients across a range of industries and specialises in fraud, misconduct and compliance-related matters, including the identification, preservation and analysis of digital evidence in cyber and technology-related investigations. This episode is certainly worth listening to, as Stan has led a very interesting life and share some helpful insights about how to thrive in complexity. Stan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know it's going to be very interesting and I think other people will find it interesting too. But can we start with something perhaps that not a lot of people might know about you? Uh, Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, Yeah, look, despite being a, a tech guy. I'm actually into old cars and motorcycles, very non-tech related, so quite dated stuff, you know, 50, 60 years old. And second to that, I guess I started out life as a, a plant operator, so driving loaders and bulldozers and heavy machinery for a living. Yep. So to this day, I still have my heavy vehicle license, which means I'm licensed to drive a, a single trailer semi. Okay, so you've always got a fallback plan. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know that <laughs> the companies would be keen on that, but let me loosen a large truck, but there you go. I suppose it could work. <laughs> That's great. And just as well, my husband's not actually on the podcast with us at the moment because he's restoring an old Holden oh. from the 1950s. Oh. So, Yes. <laughs> Nice. Yes. I have an old 66 Shelby that's in the latter stages and an old motorcycle that from the 80s, but one that I've owned. Yeah. I I bought it in 84, I think, and I still have it. I rode it across the Nullarbor, actually, to to Brisbane. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Yes. Now, Colin would be very jealous. (laughs) Fair enough. So, Stan, you specialize in forensic investigations. Would you mind giving our listeners a bit of a feel for the types of clients you work with and when you tend to get involved. Yeah. Look, investigations is something that's not really 
client or sector specific? I mean, generally where, in my case, with a crossover with forensic technology, where a, a company has either people or technology, which kind of rules most of them in, where they have issues, yep. then we'll get involved. So generally we'll deal with executives from big corporates, small corporates, business owners, local, state, federal government, all of those. So whenever there's a, an issue, and it might be, you know, the investigation might be a workplace issue, it might be a fraud, it might be a corruption or a misconduct issue, it could be a cyber incident, all of those sorts of things. Basically, all of them across a multitude of industries and sectors, so it's not really kind of targeted at one. And then on top of that, usually there's a legal bent because they're either in-house counsel or their legal representatives, their lawyers will be involved because of the evidentiary nature of investigative work. So normally yeah. it, it starts with a difficult situation as opposed to a sector or an industry and, and they just need a thorough, factual, independent understanding of what happened, how did it happen, what can I do about it, and what are the options, you know. So, yeah, that's kind of typically the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. So what types of issues might they get you to come in and help them with? I think most typically people are associated with fraud, misconduct, cyber incidents and and that sort of thing but litigation support is another area so for things like compliance related um, production notice of regulatory production yeah we support with the posting of the data so identifying what's relevant to the production notice versus what's not in a short time frame data separation is another typical one so if, if a business is selling or demerging part of its operations so you have part of the data and information stays with one business and part goes off with the other. So helping do that on in terms of the legal contract. So it, it's a really broad spread, but most people see investigations as fraud, misconduct, corruption, you know, workplace bullying and harassment or sexual misconduct or something like yeah. that, which happens a lot. And some of them, you know, large and really complex and others are kind of, kind of small and you, you rotate them around through on a day-to-day basis. So in between being a heavy plant operator and <laughs> investigating through video at the moment, you were actually a police officer. And so you were very focused on solving crimes and engaging with the criminal element in our community. Yeah. How did you manage that transition from becoming a police officer to a consultant? Yeah, I was with the police 15 years and went through a range of kind of roles there because they have such a, a variety. It's a uniform and I went into the covert undercover role for a while and then, then came out into CIB and you know fraud, drugs, homicide, major crime, special operations, that kind of thing. So it gave you a really broad background in dealing with investigations and different types and scales, but it's significantly different. So consulting kind of happened for me. I wrote a course with the University of Queensland around computer forensics and and the value of electronic evidence and how you can demonstrate to a court that something that is intangible, like metadata, for example, can be used as evidence. So that was the police were starting, although it was early days of the Mm. plastic floppy disk with the FBI logo on it. We'd shove it in and, and away we'd go. So they were still starting to use those kinds of things, but it wasn't really mainstream yet in the private sector. And after we taught the course, I, I started getting job offers and I accepted one with one of the global big four entities and, and, and that started the consulting career. 
the transition is not as simple as it sounds. There's, I mean, the the underlying methodology for investigations is the same. So that was easier. Yeah. That was kind of, you still did that. And the technology part, I had kind of got involved from the ground level on that growing as an industry in itself. So that was easy to integrate those two. So I found that was a good positive aspect. The other part was you were used to dealing with issues that are high stress environments. So I've been at homicide, drugs, raids, you know, undercover, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so you could think on your feet and you were always very calm, a bit like a, a duck shooting across a pond, you know, very smooth and serene up top and yep. thrashing like hell underneath. So there was always this feedback that I, I was always calm on the surface. No matter, you know, I didn't seem to get stressed about things. So when a, a client would ring and say, hey, I've just got this, found out that my you know, employee of 20 years has been defrauding the company and now we're going broke and, you know, it's because they've been taking all the profits over the last few years or whatever it may be, they're all all hyped up and it's, you know, I want to pursue them to the ends of the earth and, and of course, you know, that we all know that's going to dissipate after a while. But to be able to come in and just hold their hand and calm them down and say, okay, well, here's the process. I've dealt with this before. And on the other hand, then you might that might be in the morning and then in the afternoon it's a cyber attack where the entire business has been shut down and they're freaking out and saying, oh, you know, we our business has literally stopped. What do we do? Yeah. So, okay, take a breath. I've dealt with this before. And you kind of help them through. So that was all very positive. The challenges, which are often underestimated, so there's a different practicality to corporate life. So in the police, you don't go out touting for work. It just flows in. You know, there's, yeah. there's no end of it. In the civil environment, you're competing with, Competitors, so you've got to do business development. It's very reliant on networks and relationships. So what we get, so there's a strong business development requirement where you let people get to know you, and you know you take the time to go. Okay, well this is my experience, and this is what I can do for you. Then it's a compressed time frame because in the police, you you know investigation takes as long as it takes, and you follow the avenues and you doggedly pursue it. And if people aren't available, you, you know you kind of move things around and and you just do it and that the focus the outcome is the focus whereas here you've got to take things like budget into account because consulting isn't cheap so then the client's going hang on what's this going to cost and well how do i know because i don't know where the evidence is yet or what pursuit or how long it's going to take or you know you never had to worry about anything like that within the police except up at the senior levels obviously with overall budgets but so the clients are always kind of like, well, I need to get this done by next week because I've got an employee stood down on full pay and all the other staff are wondering what's going on and we need to deal with this and move on so my business can recover and we can yeah. you know, we can address the issue. Because there's all sorts of ongoing issues. If a, you know, if a fraud is a typical one, where often when the person who's committed the fraud is identified, the people around them tend to feel very betrayed and they can leave the organisation or whatever. So... So you had to do timesheets and bill in quite six-minute increments, but that's you know what it's like. So then you had to justify every expense. I go, what you you interviewed this guy for, you know, two hours or whatever. And I recall one early in my career, we interviewed this person on and off, but so we took breaks and things. But it was reported in the paper as you know, ex-cop interviews witness for ten hours, <laughs> which we did. But that was cumulative. We stopped for lunch and other things, you know. So and I thought, oh hello, you know, this a. Uh, different perception of the way things are done here so you know we they didn't bother reporting the the outcome which was very positive but you know we so you've got to be mindful of all these other things so it takes a while to get used to that and when I first started I started consulting back in about 2006 and when I first started they told me early on in the piece that normally people moving from uni or other jobs into consulting 
will acclimatise in about six months. For ex-police, they double that. Because you're <laughs> used to this very kind of rigid mind frame that I drive the process and I'm the investigator and I'm leading this and I will do instead of suddenly I've got a client who's up me and the lawyers want this outcome and you're trying to say, well, the outcome is the outcome. I can't direct the evidence. It is what, and, you know, and then they're saying, well, so I'm paying you to find out that, you know, I've been in the wrong because I've underpaid my staff or whatever it may be. And you go, well, ultimately, yes, you know, it's a compliance issue. So on top of all that, you're trying to build these relationships. So that was all quite challenging to get used to and you had to really kind of listen to the people who were working around you to say this is how it's done. And, yeah, as you grow into it, you know, you kind of adapt to that way of thinking. So all civil, so you're not dealing in the criminal environment. Fraud is the exception. But for the most part, and corruption, I guess, in some senses, but for the most part, when you're in the police, you turn away civil matters. Oh, you need to go and talk to a lawyer and deal with that. Yeah. Whereas here, it's almost the opposite. Criminal matters are few and far between. So other than, as I say, fraud and corruption, but civil matters are by and large what you're dealing with. So you, you need to kind of go, well, how do we do that? And how do we, you know, there is some pluses because you can, you know, cyber instance, for example, you can pursue someone. I work for a global organization in BDO. So, you know, I can pursue those links to London, Paris, Rome, wherever it may be. And I can ring BDO over there and go, hey, I've got this information, you know, can you follow it up for me? Whereas in the police, you had to get extraterritorial warrants and things and go through yeah. Interpol. And, you know, there's all these processes that take forever. So in some cases, you can can expedite that, which, of course, coming back to the client who's paying for it, that's a great thing. So (laughs) lots of challenges and lots of positives, yeah. Yeah. So Stan, is there any particular similarities you found between engaging with the criminal underworld and paying clients? Interestingly enough, and probably I guess the covert role is is the one where I got to see the inner operations of organised crime to the greatest degree. Sometimes Mm -hmm. as a detective when you were dismantling, that's that's true as well. But when you think about organised crime as opposed to petty stuff, so organised crime is just that. It's organised and it's global. So I'd be interested to see if you could identify all of the money, and obviously their their objective is to hide that, but if you could identify that, I'd be interested to see what size business it would be compared to some of our largest global corporates, because it would be massive. But of course, that's a very difficult concept to kind of crystallise. I think when you think about organised crime and my closer ties to them during the covert period, there was a lot of principles like you were looking for uh, to identify opportunities in your market. So you wanted to grow those areas. You weighed up the risk, which obviously the risk is very different to a corporate business, but you know the risks versus rewards. So if you were going to import drugs versus sell on the street versus you know sell in the city or the country or whatever it may be. So what were the returns? How much could you cut the powder to increase your profits? And you, you know, and then you have customer satisfaction issues because it's cut to yeah. proactive risk assessment. So how do you, you think about those things in advance? How do you mitigate those risks? What's the return on investment for every dollar I spend? You know, my colleagues had to justify their role in the business. Like, why isn't your area of the business performing well enough? You know, what What's going wrong? What do you need? What's your strategic plan for expansion and how are you executing all that? That all sounds pretty familiar, right? It does, doesn't it? (laughs) So you kind of walk away going, wow, all right. The only difference was, you know, you're sitting around a board table with shirt and tie as opposed to, you know, shorts and a singlet. But the concepts were all still there. So as I move through consulting, you see these things and I, 
early in the days, I used to have a quiet chuckle to myself because I'd be sitting there in a suit and tie thinking, wow, you know, this is really not that different. (laughs) And you're just sitting around having a discussion about where the business is going. And it was quite surreal on some occasions where you look at it and go, you know, this is the concept and the approach is identical. And I guess a lot of people think of organized crime as, you know, motorcycle gangs and whatever, but a lot of them aren't that at all. They are well-to-do people who would sit around a boardroom in a suit and tie, you know. So yeah. I think there's a lot of similarities. And that that was a unique insight that I was able to bring to investigations when you're talking about things like coordinated cyber incidents and global cyber attacks and things like that, or even, you know, corruption investigations or when I was in working with government clients around, you know, what that looks like. You had a feel for how the baddies approached it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then you can kind of go, okay, well, now I'm on the other side. I can use that to try and second guess where things might go. And, and more often than not, you're correct. So that was a huge plus. But the similarities are quite startling. Yeah. Yeah. It gives a whole new meaning to that concept of working above the line and below the line. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> I work in a consulting like audit, you know, when they have first line of defence, second line of defence. I think, yep, okay, you know, that kind of works. They don't have much in the way of audit, I guess, but stock take certainly. Yeah. You know, so it is, yeah, it it is an eye-opener and and an interesting comparison. Uh, There's probably a significant psychological article in there somewhere. And I think in terms of complexity, the space that you're working in is an interesting one because with fraud – it's really probably falls more in that complicated space where it might take a long time to work out what's going on. But as long as you keep following the recipe, following your your processes, you can eventually work out what the cause and effect was. Whereas with the cyber side of things, it's so complex. It's really affected by the interactions. And often, I know we've had conversations before about all it takes is someone to click on a link and it can open up a whole world of pain for an organization. Yep. So what are some of the sort of basics that you think everyone should be aware of when it comes to managing the complexity in that cyberspace? Look, I think, unfortunately, any business, and it doesn't matter whether they're technology-driven or not, will use tech to some degree, you know, mobile phone, computers, whatever. So, And for any business that isn't tech-savvy, so if you take out the, you know, that tech sector, then their focus is on whatever manufacturing widgets or whatever servicing clients, whatever it may be. So the the technology becomes an enabler or a facilitator, but it's not their core focus. And a lot of people, well, I'm not an IT geek. I don't know. I don't know. I have my security. I have my antivirus. I have my, you know, my anti-spam. Aren't I good? You know, is that all I need to do? And it's not. You've almost got to be you know, IT savvy and constantly on it. So, you know, things like regular risk, there is no set and forget. You can't just install your antivirus and, your, you know, your, your anti-spam and that's it. You've got to be constantly updating those, but also things like patches and releases for your software. You know, Microsoft, whoever, Apple releases a patch or an update for their operating system, that's got to be updated. You've got to think about your backups. And, you know, we've seen a, many a client where the backups are connected to the server. So when the encryption happens... It encrypts the backups as well. So, you know, how do you have separation where they're connected such that you can make backups, but then there's a separation so that if anything goes wrong, you can you can protect those. The very technology that you're 
using to facilitate the business? You know, can you leverage that to help protect staff? What about third-party risk? You know, who do you let into your system or who do you use your system to access? They might be compromised. So, you know, if you think about a bank and the millions of clients that they provide access to and you log into your internet banking, you're a threat because if you get compromised, you open up risk for the bank. So, you know, any business where you have a supply chain where you people log into your business, then they represent a risk because you let them in, you open the door. Here's your user ID, password, etc. You're in my system. If they're breached, then potentially that malicious conduct comes into yours. So do we ask them enough questions when we onboard them about what's, how do we know what their security protocols are like? And then, you know, education, obviously, is staff critical. People are critical because it's hard to, you know, antivirus companies, malware companies, they, new stuff comes out, they write an application that will identify those new threats, new threats come out that bypass that application and on and on you go. But you can't do that for people, you know, so well aware and conscious people the human firewall, if you like. Yeah. Huge defense mechanism. So, you know, education of your people and ultimately when when all goes wrong, have a plan. So what's the incident response plan? Like what do we do in the incident that somebody does click on that button or something goes wrong and everything just grinds to a halt? So rather than find out when it happens, like have a plan and then test it, make sure it works. Yeah. See you know, that'll give you a, a lot of comfort. I've seen many, many companies tested on the day. It's not a good look. And, you know, the threat is compounded because you're, you know, the company's losing money while you're trying to save it. And then, you know, dealing with that, that kind of exacerbates the issue because you're, it's not just a matter of stop, restore, figure out what happened. It's like, oh my God, we're, you know, we're completely shot. Our reputation is blown. Everything is yep. dwindling rapidly. So there's all that you know, risk and tension that comes with that stress. So I'm sure with your background, you've definitely dealt with a lot of unexpected situations. <laughs> What's something that you've learned over the years about facing the unexpected that you think might help other leaders who are listening to this? Unexpected by nature is, you know, needs you to think rapidly on your feet, etc. So the more prepared you can be, the better you are. And that's difficult when you, you know, most people are just focused on their day-to-day activities. First thing I would say is a knee-jerk or a panic response. I need to do this right now and I'll do it. Very rarely is that productive, unless it's a practice, yeah. you're following a plan. And then you go, right, this is the response because it's not knee-jerk, it's this is the plan. So they very rarely help, and often they they make things far more difficult because you'll destroy evidence or you'll you know you'll create further problems for yourself. So you need to stop, take the time to go right. What's going on? What expertise do I need? You know, if it's a fraud, do I need an investigator or a lawyer? Do I if it's an IT thing, do I need a cyber guy? You know, an incident responder versus an IT security guy, or you know, what's the issue? What's the problem? What are my options? And then, you know, surround yourself with go-to people in advance, ideally. So I talked before about networking. So once you get to know people, you know, if it's an incident response, I know Stan deals with that. I can give him a ring. I've got his number in my phone. Or, you know, this is my lawyer. I'll go to them. Or, you know, this is investigator. I'll, you know, Stan can sort that out. Or yeah, even if it's as much as I'd like to say, just put Stan in your phone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for most of those issues, if you can just talk to someone and say, okay, well, you know, I've got a problem, it's urgent, I'm bleeding here, I need help. So I think pre-planning as much as you can, but take the time, 
have your go-to people and say, right, I've got legal advice, I've got consulting advice, I've got you know expert of T-simulation IT, I've got those sorts of people around me that I can tap into when I need to and our plan. So, you know, I've yeah. thought about it in advance, but invariably unexpected things are going to throw you. So reach out, but take the time, take a breath before you act. Yeah. Then move forward, yeah. And so it sounds like it's also thinking about what are the things that could go wrong and if they do go wrong, how are we going to respond so it's that prepare yeah. so that you can get a bit more order back into things more quickly because you've actually thought it out before it's happened. So you might not know exactly how to solve it or how to manage it, but you at least know what those early steps are to start to get a little bit of order back in place. Yeah. Yeah, so the the incident response plan is a good example for cyber. So, you know, you can, if you've got the plan and you've tried it a couple of times, it might be for a ransomware attack where everything's encrypted, but instead you get a, you know, a malware attack where, you know, your contacts are compromised or something like that. But at least you've got the idea. It's not such a knee-jerk reaction. If you've had a plan, you're following it and and you kind of go, oh, it's not quite what we figured on, but it's close, you know, then you're much better off then somebody going, right, well, it's just happened. What do we do? And, you know, right, first we need a coffee, you know. So you, it's difficult, but you, whatever happens in your business, you'll have a feel for the area it's in and you just need people that you can go to with expertise in those areas. So, you know, like I said, IT, legal, consulting, investigative, you know, all those sorts of yeah. things. And who do you have in your phone that you can call on for those things? So it sounds like business continuity planning is a good idea. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> it, it sounds odd, but it happens a lot where businesses grind to a halt for some reason. And it could be fraud and loss of funds. It could be an attack. It could be, you know, something physical um, or even, you know. Years ago, I worked for the health department and they had a plumbing failure up on about floor 12 and it took out all the floors below because they were running wheelie bins picking up you know, trying to fill wheelie bins with leaking water and it just flowed through the whole building. And I know, I remember going into the incident response and having to activate the plan about how do we still do everything that we need to do because we can't be in the building because it's flooded. Yeah, yeah. So knee-jerk response might be call a plumber, right? But realistically, (laughs) you probably need to be calling building services and maintenance to say, well, how do we shut off water to the entire building, not just that floor or you know, get somebody yeah. to screw up, a, stop a leak. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly the kind of physical thing I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really curious, Dan, what does thriving in complexity actually mean to you? I think complexity to me means a constant changing environment. So thriving in that, I think it's, I'd say, be willing to fail and fail fast and then move yeah. on, you know, because and why I say that, it's because it's a sign that you're open to new ideas and innovation. And if you're not, then as the environment that it gets increasingly complex, you're not moving along with it. So you're not going to understand it or be able to take advantage of it or thrive. So yeah. fail, but fail fast. Don't don't drag it out. Just if it doesn't work, stop. And that's okay. You know, you, you learn from mistakes. So you try something else and, you know, you look at new ideas and new innovations and then you'll grow and thrive because of that. Yeah. I think it goes back to what we we're talking about before too, about that preparing. So thinking about not just I'm okay with failing, but what are the parameters that I'm prepared to fail within? Sure. And actually thinking up front, how much money am I prepared to lose? 
am I going to do this in a way but make sure that no one gets hurt? Yeah. So it's fail fast but safe to fail? Safe to fail. As well? Yeah. How do you create that environment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's in terms of whatever the project is that you're going to try, those parameters should be built into the planning stage. So you say, well, how do I measure the point at which I'm going to call it a success or a failure? And that, yeah. that could be cost-driven, as you say. It could be obviously safety and, and other issues. But you And if you hit those parameters, they're hard and fast. So we've hit the parameter. That was the agreed parameter. You know, We call this success or we call it failure and we move on. You know, that, that is, it is what it is. And then you learn from that. So, and you will, you will learn from it. And generally, you'll learn more from failures than from successes. So, you know, yeah. that's okay. Not that you want to fail constantly, but, you know, I think if you've planned and you call it, you'll adjust your plan for each consecutive project and you'll find the right one. Yeah. So we hear a lot in the media today, or just business generally, about VUCA context. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Yeah. Is there anything in that space that really keeps you awake at night that's on your mind? What keeps volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, all those things keep me awake? (laughs) I think there's constant change in in that environment, and that's stressful in that you've got to be – you're constantly kind of toing and froing and – but for me, every issue, it's one of two things. It's either an opportunity or it's a hurdle. So yep. it's going to slow you down or it's an opportunity to expedite. And really, whether something's an opportunity or a hurdle depends on your perspective and how you react to it. So if you yep. have your plan and you fail and fail fast and it's safe to fail, then you know you try it, it becomes an opportunity and you build on that. If you allow it to stop you, then it's a hurdle and, you know, you either stress about it as you try and figure out your way around it or you move on. I try and stay abreast of the industry so that I'm not laying in bed awake at night about all of those things because those things, I accept that those things are going to continue and that ambiguous nature is going to always be there. That volatility is going to always be there. So I can't control that. So why lay in bed stressed at night staring at the ceiling being scared of it? You've just got to say, well, okay, it will present opportunities and challenges and and I'll deal with each as it comes. So tomorrow's a new day, new opportunity or new challenge. Hopefully not too many hurdles. (laughs) So Stan, what are some practical things that you do then to keep abreast of how things might be changing around you? Look, in my case... The biggest thing we can do, particularly in the investigations tech space, but also in terms of the broader forensic businesses we grow, is to educate and stay across what's happening both globally and because you've got things like the changes in privacy legislation, modern slavery, and the various regulatory impacts from around the world. So US UK Bribery Act, US Justice Act, all those sorts of things will all impact businesses in Australia. So mm-hmm. staying abreast of all of those things it could almost be a full-time job in itself. So, you know, you, you rely on a whole range of user forums. There's you know, conferences and education and training development sessions run by either the legal fraternity or the business fraternity or the government regulators. There's, you know, investigative forums as well, tech forums. So all of those sorts of things, they'll identify key new trends. And then the ones that are valuable to you you can kind of pick and choose them and go along and yeah and then not only just listen but contribute because a lot of the times you'll have a view or something to say that others might not have come across so there's value in that 
And, you know, as an example, more recently, we've been looking at things like voice-to-text conversion and not only being able to make recordings computer searchable for things like you know, discovery and compliance and litigation, but also from an analytics perspective, so sentiment analysis and, you know, was it a positive conversation, was it a negative conversation and, and those sorts of things. So we've been working with some of the companies to beta test that improvements in handwriting recognition by computers. So not OCR, but by not on text as in type text, so handwritten documents and, yeah. you know, can we improve the outcome and the results of that to save it having to be done manually and, you know, what about, you know, trader surveillance and those other areas. So, and that all kind of feeds into a broader data analytics play. So all of those sorts of things. So it's about staying on top of it. I think education is the key, but having an yeah. input too, not just being, a, you know, someone who just sucks it out. So, you know, present regularly and have your say on, whatever the things may be. And people will not always agree with you, and that's okay because then you'll come away with an alternative valuable insight that you can get. Yeah. Never thought of that. I'll have a look into that one. So it's a broad scanning, digging in when something piques your interest and you think, oh, that I really need to get more across that. It's about being willing to share your own perspective and perhaps triggering conversations with other people that can actually challenge your thinking and help you to develop your own thinking in that space. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very rare that you're going to be the smartest person in the room unless you're by yourself. So, you know, you, you, there's always something you can learn from others. Yeah. So, you know, your peers, colleagues, competitors, you know, they're always, even people outside your normal circle will have something to say about technology yeah. investigations, whatever it may be, that, that affects them, modern slavery. You know, someone can say, oh, well, I had this incident once at work. So they might have no bearing on forensic as a background at all, but they've lived through an experience that is incredibly valuable, you know. So I guess it'd be much the same as, you know, me talking about organised crime or saying, well, yeah. you know, I've had I've been involved in the drugs distribution operations. I know how that works. And somebody go, well, not what I would figure, but from a supply chain perspective, that could be valuable. Yes. So, you know, you, it's unexpected, but interesting nonetheless. <laughs> so we've been talking about learning from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious if you've ever been faced with a complex situation, which after you've gotten through, you've looked back and said, oh, I wish I had have managed that differently. What's one of those situations and what did you learn from it? What would you do differently next time? <laughs> I've had some crackers over the years. <laughs> so there's certainly certainly a lot of complex situations that that sometimes I've, I've felt I was only just keeping my head above water or, or sometimes not even. And you, you know, you kind of get to the other end and think, oh, never again, never again. You know, so as I was saying before, you you learn a lot more from your failures than your successes. You you do something and it goes brilliant. You go, woohoo, I'll just do that again, you know, which great. But when things go horribly wrong, you kind of like dissect it afterwards and you're looking at what decisions that I made didn't work and where where I thought I was on solid ground, I actually wasn't. And, you know, so I think... One of the easy traps in the consulting environment to fall into is is trying to keep the client happy. So yeah. uh, I'm thinking ones that I can talk about here, <laughs> which won't either embarrass me or break any uh, confidentiality agreements. But generally, so keeping the client happy is something that a trap. You know, when you first start in consulting, is easy to fall into because you're learning the skills and you want to please them. You want to keep them happy. So you tend to let them guide the process when really, because they'll be like, I'm, especially if they're a bit grumpy or they're, you know, forceful by nature, 
senior executives particularly and it'd be this is what I want to do this is what I want you know you're here I've, I've engaged you to do that just do it and you do even though you know it's not going to work out well or it's the right thing to do and you know I've fallen into that trap myself and you you kind of go through it all and of course it all you know it's going to go pear-shaped but you head down that path anyway because the client's saying no, no this is what I want to do and you you put up a bit of token resistance and then, you, of course, when it all goes pear-shaped, they blame it on you. Yep. You did this. You know, you should have done that. You should have done that. You know, why didn't you tell me? Well, I, I did try and mention that, you know. But so – and then invariably you have a bun fight about how much it's cost them to achieve nothing. So, you know, I think there's real value in difficult conversations and Australians particularly. Yeah, and I used to be the same, struggle with them and – Yep. having them and and I don't mean that in a negative sense it's more about saying okay client look what you're telling me you're going to end up in a world of pain here and you're going to achieve nothing I'm not adding any value if I do that you've engaged me because of my expertise in this particular area let me put that to work for you and oftentimes yep. when you finally get through to them and it might take a couple of goes but if you can get them to listen and invariably, because you know what you're doing, you'll get to a successful outcome. Then there's that transition to trusted advisor. Then they'll go, okay, I know you've proved yourself. I know you're worth listening to. And you become that person they call to go, hey, you know, I've got this question or somebody's just, my CEO's just brought to the board this issue. What do we do about it? Have you got any thoughts on that? And it's not always going to be a big paid gig or anything like that. Yeah. You can say, hey, you know, they will call you constantly because you are that trusted advisor. And when the job comes through, guaranteed, they'll take your advice. And you can all because of that first difficult discussion that you had. And open and honest. And like I said, I don't mean difficult in negative. I mean difficult in terms of it makes you feel bad to say, no, sir, you're wrong. Or no, ma'am, you're wrong. This is what you should be doing. I know you don't want to, but this is what you should be doing. And, and I'm telling you to invest your money that way or and follow that process. And then, you know, it gets easier after that. Sometimes it takes several goes, but, <laughs> you know, you'll get there. So it's – I've learned that lesson. Like I said, I fell into that trap a few times and, and I've learned that lesson. So, you know, I try and make a point of being open about that. And, and it's difficult sometimes when others don't understand that. So that, you know, they either they see it as negative or – they just don't like to do that. So they don't like to tell you that, you know, if you ask for feedback, they don't yeah. like to tell you something bad. They go, oh, no, no, you did fabulous. And then you walk away and they go, oh, geez, you did this and you did that. And, he, you know, so you, I, I would much rather they just said, look, I really like this, didn't like that, you know, so you can understand where it's at. But I think inherently uh, many Australians find that a difficult proposition. And I know I love Brene Brown talks about how clear is kind. Yep. And so the fact that you're actually saying, I don't want you to waste all your money, we actually get a better outcome if we do it this way. I mean, that is what clear as kind is in practice in business, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. You're yep. doing them no favours by putting them on a pedestal and telling them how fabulous they are. Yeah. You know, the, the client doesn't really want to hear that. When they call you, they want to know, what do I need to do? I've heard you. I'm not taking a knee-jerk response. I've taken the time. I've got my go-to people. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah. And then we'll we'll see this problem through to resolution because they can, they can weigh you down. Problems generally, whatever they are, will, will pile up. You know? And it's hard when you're a senior person that, towards the top of an organisation just having advisors that you can trust. 
because often when you're having a conversation internally, there's all sorts of organizational politics going on and just knowing that you're talking to someone who doesn't have a vested interest in that. And particularly if you're saying don't spend money where you don't need to spend money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're talking to a consultant, right, and they're going, well, you know, then <laughs> the old typical give me a hand me your watch and I'll tell you the time. Yeah. You know, so it's, it is difficult. And I think clients are always kind of a little wary of dealing with consultants. So you need to establish that relationship and that's important. And that can take a long time. And, you know, by the time you in a very senior role, you'll only have a handful of really strong relationships because if you're trying to maintain 30, that would take your full day and you wouldn't get any of yeah. your day job done. So, you know, there's a real handful of people. And then by extension, you, you have someone that you really trust. So if I'm the, the trusted advisor for a particular entity and then they know that if they need something, that even if it's not my expertise, I'm backed by a global company. So if they need yeah. something that's not forensic related, but they need a, you know, a proactive cybersecurity assessment or a, you know, something like that, then they can go, well, Stan's instant response. We know that's not his, but he'll know somebody. So I can reach yes. out to you know, one of my colleagues and say, hey, you know, this is the guy to talk to. And, and because they trust me, then that inherently goes to my colleague and, and invariably, I'll be saying to my colleague, look after them because I do, you know. So, <laughs> but that sort of process, and the, when you're in a large global organization like BDO, we have people all around the world. So, you know, whether it's foreign jurisdictions and languages and skills and whatever, you'll find it somewhere, you'll find it. So, yeah. the reach of talent is, is amazing once you kind of understand where the pockets are. Yeah. And so, Stan, if you had a chance to go back and talk to your 25 year old self, what advice would you give yourself about what you might do differently? My 25-year-old self had just exited covert work, I think, and back into the real world policing. So I think at 25, everything's a drama. You know, you're trying to succeed, you're building a life, you've got, you know, you're on the cusp of family and all those sorts of things. So I would say don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. Looking back, you know, if I, I look at key things that caused me great deals of stress over the years, when I look at them now, they really weren't that big a deal, you know. Yep. So you kind of go with time and the right attitude and approach, you'll find a resolution. And there's a couple of really significant things. One was building my house. I got an owner builder's license and built it myself. And we realized that the top was too high because the roof was inverted like a V as opposed to a peak. So the outside edge was much higher than the middle, which didn't seem like a big deal. But what it meant was that it potentially breached council guidelines and I'd have to reconstruct the roof. Kept me awake for days. And I was I was literally lying in bed awake. I had no idea what to do. The council had sent me a letter to say, okay, we need to check this, you know. And I was running around trying to figure out all of these, can we, I'd spoken to the builder. Can we redirect it, make it like a W-shaped roof to bend it down? Can we cut a piece of it off? What can we? I was trying to think of all these things. And a, a professor at the university actually said to me, look, stop. Let your subconscious mind think on it. Don't focus on it so much. Just try and do something else. Relax. Let your subconscious mind work on it. You'll come up with a solution. And I, my first thought was, what a crock of shit. So, <laughs> but I had nothing else. I had, I'd run out of answers. So I gave it a shot. And the next day, I got up in the morning and called my private certifier, the one person I hadn't reached out to. So, and he, he said, look, 
your land slopes. So ground level is where I say it is, so I'll come and measure it. So he came out and had a look at it and said, well, you're measuring your eight and a half, which is your maximum. And I was like, you know, 200 over or whatever it was. Yeah. But he said, you're measuring it from the wrong place. I can't change the top, but my bottom measurement was wrong. So he said, if you measure it from natural ground, you're perfectly fine. You're actually about 130 under. So, and like that, the problem was gone. So I, yeah. he filled it out, sent it off to council. They went, yep, no problem. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I'd wasted a week of sleepless nights running around, ringing people, builders and, you know, whatever. But instead of taking the time, knee-jerk reaction since, they're taking the time, yeah. thinking about it. So, you know, realistically, those huge things were not the problems they seem to be. If I look back now at all that, and that, you know, I tried hard throughout my career. I've really kind of pushed and pushed and pushed for success. And pleased to say, touch wood, I had that, but it came with a lot of, angst that I think in hindsight, if I had to just went, you know what, <laughs> small stuff, it's really not that bad. I would have got here in a, in a I can't say with more hair because I'm actually doing all right, but <laughs> I would have got here in a much less stressed state, let's say. Yeah. Certainly, I look at things now when younger people are coming through joining our organization and they're worried about things, you know, in life and you go, you know what, just that's not such a big deal. Have a look at this or try that. and, and Yeah. You know, you can just move on, which is awesome. So take a big deep breath if it's really bad. Mm -hmm. No matter what it is, don't sweat it. Give your brain a chance to reset and then try and look at it from a different perspective or Correct. look at it from different perspectives. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Reach out to the right people. Surround yourself yeah. with people who know about what you're doing. Great. Good advice. Yeah. 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 So Stan, if people want to connect with you online, how can they find you? I'm not on the typical cyber guy, so I stay off the typical yep. social media platform. <laughs> I'm on the video website, obviously, so video.com.au, which has both phone and email there. So my mobile, I can get people to get in touch with me directly or uh, via email at stan.gallo at video.com.au. I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, for work purposes. It's only ever work stuff. I don't take pictures of my dinner yep. or anything. So any of those forums, my children tell me that if you Google me, I take up the first couple of pages, so there's no no issue in trying to find me there. So lots of options, albeit not Facebook or you know Instagram or any of those. I'm not on any of those. No worries. Look, Stan, thank you so much for coming today and sharing some of your insights. I'm sure people have found it fascinating and you've given people some really helpful hints about how to actually thrive in much more complex situations. And I like that just sometimes it's best just to stop, take a big deep breath and understand the problem before you jump in trying to solve it or trying to manage it. So I think that's really sound advice. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the end, look, at the end of the day, if you've tried your absolute best and you know you have, then you've done enough and you've got to accept that. I think that's a nice way to end on it is just focus on what you've done, not what someone else has done. And yeah, good advice. Exactly. Thanks so much, Stan. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. <laughs>